How's the outline look? Frankie, I put question mark, Frankie T-shirt corner, question mark. The promise and threat of shirt fronting with Frankie is that we, we don't know where it could happen. It could spring on us at any time. Indeed, it could be halfway through us discussing this report. It could be. On gas transition in Europe. It could be partway through the uh, US compact. Yes, yes, stuff about trade in energy and critical minerals, but what about trade in ethical T-shirts? I can find tangents wherever I need to. Don't you worry. Let me sum up your regular deep dive into recent reports on climate and energy. I'm Luke Mansell, reporting today on Wurundjeri Land, and as always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts. Global Vice President for Environmental, Social Governance and T-Shirts at the Let Me Sum Up podcast, Frankie Muskwich. Hello, Frankie. Good evening, Luke and Tennant. I've been working hard for us on all fronts, uh, as described, and look forward to shirt fronting with you both shortly. <laughs> I was wondering whether you might shirt front us in the middle of my introductions, but I'm going to quickly move on (laughs) to avoid that by introducing the man with the dodgy spreadsheet, Tenant Reed. G'day, Tenant. I do have a dodgy spreadsheet. I might even have more than one, and uh, I'm always ready to concoct another at the drop of a hat. On this week's show, we take a look at what one of the EU's top science advisory bodies has to say about the future of gas. But first, concern over the impact of the US government's Inflation Reduction Act on Australia's ambitions for clean energy superpowerdom have been rampant. And while $2 billion of hydrogen subsidies in the recent federal budget were welcomed, they were but a ripple compared to the cash tsunami emanating from Washington. However, since we last recorded, President Biden and Prime Minister Albanese announced that they intend to negotiate a US-Australia Climate, Critical Minerals and Clean Energy Transformation Compact, which is at least partially an attempt to ensure Australia can ride the IRA wave rather than be dunked by it. There is plenty of detail to work out, but Frankie, is this compact a sign that diplomacy could yet win the day? It's definitely an interesting development in the way that this is being positioned by both governments. So Biden and Albanese met on the sidelines of the G7 meeting recently in Japan um, to sign up to this. And the way it was described at the time uh, was that this compact should be seen as like the third pillar of the alliance alongside Mm. our defence and economic cooperation. So potentially a rather significant platform for more work. But as you say, it's barely more than an announcement um, at Mm. this stage and and lots to do. Uh, And I think in the context of the IRA and our previous chats uh, on this, I think it's broadly expected. And a lot of the commentary has suggested uh, that this would... um, basically provide for Australian companies to access some of those subsidies uh, as if they were based uh, in in the US. Uh, But that's not at all clear in what's been uh, committed to, and there's a lot of speculation except to say that a lot of the... um, the comments from the Prime Minister uh, and, and sort of others involved in it suggested that this was about uh, really, uh, you know, addressing any barriers that uh, the imposition of that legislation might have. Um, but there are a couple of concrete measures included in this, uh, including setting up 
a um, a clean energy industrial transformation forum, which is going to flesh out some some core objectives for the compact, and they've committed to deliver an action plan by the end of the year uh, that would um, set out some more concrete actions on industrial collaboration. And they've also committed to a ministerial task force on critical minerals as well. And maybe you could sort of look at this as well, if Australia wants to have some of um, the IRA's lunch, uh, it's also fair to observe that Australia has access to a lot of um, key critical minerals, and this is this is a strategic play potentially from the US to ensure that they might get um, some preferential treatment and access to the vast resources that Australia might be able to bring to bear mm. in becoming a, a renewable energy superpower. There's obviously that geopolitical element of this as well, right? Because it's not just the US that's interested in Australia's critical minerals. It's uh, There's a little country to our north called China that's, uh, that's pretty focused on securing that resource as well. Uh, tenant what lens did you see this through? Geopolitical, clean energy transformation? Uh, are there other lenses we should be thinking about? Well, you know, there's the all-important one of uh, how do we briefly refer to this agreement? And I'm not sure that ASAC Kmek ETK is going to catch on as, uh, as an acronym. But beyond that, the compact, I think most directly does lead to the the critical minerals piece of this. So the the thing that is, uh, among all the clean economy opportunities that Australia's got, the one that is most obviously going to happen, and it's just a question of how uh, big can we go with it, is the, the transition minerals part. The question mark is, the biggest question mark there, is over the onshore processing, uh, particularly of lithium, uh, where uh, currently we have quite substantial exports and growing exports, but the vast bulk of what we export is processed overseas and, in fact, in China. Uh, and so to, to make that piece of it happen, we need a bunch of capital and we need markets that are keen on lithium that uh, may not be the absolute most price competitive, but definitely does not raise China-related national security concerns. And so uh, US money and Australian minerals could mean Australian minerals processing. And something alongside this agreement that, that got said was uh, that the Biden administration would ask Congress, with with whom they've been doing some deals on, on matters very, very painfully, but, but getting them done, they would ask them to add Australia to a list that apparently currently Canada is the only one on uh, of countries that the uh, US military can direct money to in relation to critical minerals. So that sounds positive. Uh, for for those industry development hopes. Bigger question marks over all the other pieces of clean economy development that there's also references to uh, in, in the compact. Uh, but I think we'll need to see what has been developed by the end of the year and over the next 12 months by these uh, task forces and forums that are established jointly on fleshing out the specific objectives and the actions towards them. The thing that interests me about this 
is something I've been thinking about quite a bit over the last 18 months, particularly post-war in Ukraine, is the importance of not just securing supply chains, um, but also where those supply chains run through. And increasingly, as you know, the geopolitical environment um, gets more fraught, uh, a lot more uncertainty, particularly in our region. Ensuring your supply chains run through democracies has quite a bit of benefit in terms of resilience and if you're interested in you know a rapid uh, transition um, and one that isn't going to be interrupted by geopolitical strife um, along the way then that becomes a lens one should put over all all kinds of investments over time and um, you can see that reflected in um, this compact you can also see it reflected a bit in the report we're going to talk about today and the way that the EU is thinking about its Clean energy supply chains in the as one is transforming one supply chains, um, considering uh, the stability, uh, the alliances, the relationships um, that exist now and are likely to exist in the future. And they're also, I think, uh, in the uh, joint media release they put out, where it pains to also talk about uh, our two countries' collaboration in the context of the Indo-Pacific and the need to focus on resilience and adaptation as a part of that as well. Um, so there weren't firm measures uh, committed to necessarily, but in terms of thematics um, and our our role in the region and the US is our obviously interest in firming up our partnership and strengthening it in this way is definitely minded, I think, to having that more positive influence in the region more broadly. Well, we'll find out in uh, six to 12 months what this one's going to turn into. Needs a better acronym, though. Definitely needs a better acronym. Mm. I have a T-shirt tangent on that. Surf running with Frankie. Uh, Take it away, Frankie. (laughs) I'm going to keep it really brief. Uh, I have continued my due diligence. And as I said to you folks before we started recording properly, um, I've been set up with a couple of really great conversations uh, with people who have been uh, really working and innovating in this space for a long time, including um, a couple of people who are involved in the founding of apps like Good On You, uh, which are like, if you haven't already got onto this, people, PSA, download it. Uh, it's a really great app. It, it tells you how, uh, sustainable, uh, how sustainable a clothing brand is according to a few different criteria, uh, environmental, social, and I think it looks at animal, uh, animal rights as well. Um, as well as some owners and founders of sustainable clothing companies in Australia that might, uh, might present opportunities for collaboration and partnership. Uh, So stay tuned for that. Um, But the other thing I wanted to talk about as well, given we're looking at T-shirts and likely going to be focusing in on cotton because there's a lot more uh, that's done in the way of um, tracking provenance and things like that and certification standards that are relevant in that space. The thing to bear in mind, though, if if you can't satisfy yourself that you can track exactly where that cotton's come from. There's not a small chance um, that that could have been produced with forced labour because about 20% of the world's cotton comes from the Uyghur region in China. Mm. And, uh, you know, if if the label on your T-shirt says made in China, there's there's very little, uh, anyone like, you know, you you or me without, without access to a lot more information than that, 
could satisfy yourselves that there isn't potentially forced labour involved. So I guess what this was this sort of forces in terms of decision making when it comes to how you would procure things. And this is relevant for issues like solar panels as it well. Sure is. It's, it's 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 incredibly topical. I'm I've uh, been involved on a working group around modern slavery and forced labor in uh, in solar panels. I made it relevant for the pod, guys. I have a relevant anecdote in a moment. <laughs> Well, I look forward to hearing it because there's some uh, good work that's happening, but really the transparency kind of ends very quickly once you go inside China's borders uh, on many of these things, uh, cotton or um, silica or whatever it is. There is a case then for picking winners. So it might be that to avoid the risk of procuring something that has um, that has been, you know, made with forced labour, you might choose to only partner with a company uh, that sources cotton from Australia, for example, where you can have a much higher confidence uh, that the people involved in that have been paid fairly. So. Those are some of the early little insights I thought I'd bring, but I'll, I'll have uh, much more interesting updates for our next chat. What's your uh, anecdote, Tennant? Uh, recently, uh, I was privileged to listen to a uh, side conversation with one of the world's foremost philosophers and ethicists uh, where uh, the other people harassing uh, this eminent person uh, were complaining about the difficulties they were facing in trying to get a big solar project going for their business and they couldn't meet their own commitment uh, to ensure that there was no possibility of forced labour being involved in the, uh, the panels and the materials. They didn't know for sure, they just couldn't get a guarantee from any potential supplier that that would definitely be the case and they wanted to know what they should do. And the philosopher said... (laughs) The unnamed philosopher. (laughs) After thinking about it for a bit, that they should just do the project because uh, more good would be done for more people by uh, averting climate change uh, than the harm done by being a customer, possibly, for forced labour. It's a very utilitarian perspective <laughs> on the Indeed. issue. <laughs> and you might make some conclusions from that. But in any event, it's an interesting question and one that many people will be pondering for a little while uh, until, I think, uh, China des- decides that uh, its economic development slash uh, busy work pacification uh, programs are doing even from a very grim point of view, more harm than good and change at least economic tack in uh, Xinjiang. So it, there's a link here back to the last episode because we talked about, you know, the, the attempt to develop industries and the fact that, you know, Germany spent a huge amount of um, time and effort and, and money trying to develop a local solar industry only to have their lunch eaten by China. And one of the relevant factors in that was just it was the ability to deploy labour um, at minimum very cheaply, but also potentially under morally uncertain circumstances in a way that, you know, a, a country like Germany just is never never going to be able to or want to do. And so um, it's an interesting lens to put across, um, you know, the huge industrial development that we're going to need to undertake to get this 
transition done and also like the immediate prerogatives of just accelerating versus what we might expect in one, two, four or five years because the the challenge of what that unnamed uh, philosopher uh, advised is that by failing to put pressure on those supply chains on that issue and just buying uh, the product anyway, if everybody does that, then it'll never change, right? Well, that just reinforces the behaviour. And this is actually where the conversation sort of at. Um, when I talk to a lot of companies who are, you know, because I think increasingly you can't separate uh, the environmental imperatives of what you're doing with procuring large um, solar installations with the social elements of what's involved. And alternatives are, well, you source your panels from somewhere else and, and you know, and you'll pay a good 30% more for it. I don't see a lot of proponents going down that path just yet. Um, but the, the other way of looking at it, which goes to your point, uh, Luke, is that sometimes that's also not the best path for a longer-term resolution on an issue. Uh, what happens if you have a whole bunch of industries, not suggesting this is likely to happen in the next little while, that then refuse to procure um, from those other sources what happens to the people who mm. have been subject to forced labour in that uh, in that instance. Uh, their potential outlook is not at all certain or good. Uh, so sometimes the, the slower, more, um, more painful, I think, process of, of applying pressure and forcing change. Well, staying engaged, right, and asking the questions and seeking those seeking those answers. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's tough, and it's also tough in the context of another conversation I had, not so dissimilar to the one that the tenant was having, which was <laughs> effectively someone asked me, "Oh, well, should we uh, just completely transform our economic system <laughs> to solve climate change, or should we work with the one we have?" And I said, "Well, I'm not." adverse to a theoretical conversation about transforming our economic system but I'm not sure that we have time <laughs> so, so I don't know that it's really a question I, I sense a, a spectre is haunting this conversation, the spectre of centrism <laughs> some might say tenant that we're Australia's leading ultra-centrist climate and energy podcast uh, some might say that and good luck to them <laughs> I reject that entirely <laughs> um just before we finish this up, I would just shout out because I've, you know, I don't know if you both have, but I've definitely been uh, involved in some work going on in this space. Um, I do a lot of work on modern slavery and supply chains in my day job, and there is a concerted effort going on, particularly around uh, solar. And uh, the Clean Energy Council has done some great work. Obviously, there's some legislative instruments around banning imports on. Um, panels made with forced labour but as we've discussed it's sort of almost impossible to to tell um, where exactly those panels have come from but there is a lot of work being done uh, to look at that so I'll make sure those links to that work are in the show notes for anyone who's interested to have a read about it. Shirt franking <laughs> Shirt franking <laughs> Shirt franking with Fronty <laughs> Shirt franking. Shall we chat about a report? I think we should. 
The European Academies Science Advisory Council, or ESAC, is made up of the National Science Academies of the 28 EU member states and seeks to provide robust, independent, evidence-based advice on the big issues facing the European Union. Their latest report has a simple title, The Future of Gas, and considers the question in light of the EU's 2030 and 2050 emissions reduction targets, the options available for replacing gas in buildings, industry and the power sector, and how to achieve a phase-out of unabated gas use without impacting security and affordability of energy supplies. There is a lot packed into this report's 70 pages, Tennant. What did you make of it? So this is a report that has gone through a bit of a journey uh, on its way to publication because they started uh, with a guess. Uh, What will happen to gas in the the medium term and the long term uh, from a European perspective? And then gas stuff went absolutely bananas. Mm. Uh, So they, they started writing this, I think, in 2020, maybe 2021, took a long gestation period, and then Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Uh, Russia choked off supplies to Europe. The pipelines got blown up by persons still unknown, and European policymakers went into light-speed overdrive trying to come up with great big things to respond to all of that. And so I think they've probably had to update their recommendations quite a bit as they've gone. And I think some of the things that they started to recommend they found were already policy by the end of the process. Mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting for us in Australia for at least two reasons. One is just that Europe is a very big player in global gas markets as a buyer and a big player in a bunch of other markets, and how they are thinking about this uh, is going to be quite important and influential for markets that we're connected to, technologies that we may uh, increasingly rely on, all sorts of reasons. Secondly, uh, there's, there's a bunch of judgments being made here from a European context that nonetheless we can learn from or, you know, uh, maybe argue with, uh, but... It's it's relevant to Australia thinking about the future of gas as well, which is some big think that that we really need. We've had a, ourselves a quite reactive period uh, in response to fears about price. Well, the reality of, of bad price, fears about supply adequacy, uh, concerns about what what's the implications of decarbonisation for all this. So it's a it's useful to get a. Similar but not the same jurisdiction um, having a, a, a think about this. Of course, this is the learned academies, the the academics, the science, uh, the scientists thinking about this, not necessarily identical perspectives to national governments or the European Union level. Uh, but there's a lot of alignment in there, so it's it's well worth learning from. And they've got a bunch of big recommendations, which, like, just to, to rattle off the, the, the top six, efficiency first, do a bunch of energy efficiency as part of the immediate and the, the medium-term responses, and couple that with building a hell of a lot more clean power. They really pair more clean power and more efficient use of energy as things that have to be absolutely harnessed together. 
they have a specific recommendation about banning installation of new gas boilers, uh, water systems and, and heating systems. Uh, they have recommendations around sorting out supply chains for all the kit that's going to be needed to make this work. Recommendations around supporting vulnerable energy users, both households and business. And they really want to uh, give those users money, not blunt the price signals uh, from the energy markets. And uh, it's very important to skill up uh, a whole lot of people to do the massive amount of large scale and small scale deployment that, that is involved. So, like, there's a lot in there. Uh, which parts do we want to focus on first? There's, there's some pretty juicy hot-button topics in there too. Well, before we jump into the detail, uh, just on that point around it being an interesting sort of through-the-looking-glass, similar set of issues but in a different context, I was trying to think about if there's anything approaching an equivalent report at the national level, you know, whether by government or indeed by um, an independent group, that takes on this issue in a similar sort of way. And I was, I was coming up short, but maybe I'm overlooking something. The closest thing I could come to was the, um, the Infrastructure Victoria report on the future of mm. gas network infrastructure, which was sort of taking a fairly integrated look at these mm. issues. But I think we acknowledged at the time was somewhat constrained by, you know, the fact that they're a government agency, um, they can't get too far ahead of the politics on this stuff. But is there another effort in an Australian context to grapple with a similar set of questions? Because if there isn't, one of the conclusions I drew from reading this book, well, something like this could be really, really useful uh, in an Australian context. I think it would be useful. I think there should be, um, because some of the con- some of the additional context uh, for this uh, report as well uh, is that the EU is also uh, part of the global methane pledge yes. yeah. uh, that's you know obviously uh, got a lot of countries over 150 or so including Australia uh, to reduce methane on 2020 levels by 30 percent in 2030 uh, so this is also another driver um and as we, I think we've commented on this before in previous podcasts, I mean, this report is very bullish on the idea that the unabated use of natural gas needs to be phased out yep. as an urgent priority. Yep. That's not where the domestic conversation in Australia is. Um, but the, the report, you know, the, I, I agree. I think the Infrastructure Vic report may be the closest thing to something like that here uh, was done before we signed up to that global methane pledge. We didn't have, you know, a national objective uh, to, to target methane uh, emissions specifically. Um, and I guess one of the other framing elements of this, and I, I'm sure we'll all have views on this as well, uh, was that they're, you know, they're also zeroing in on this uh, because of methane's high global warming potential in the short term. So they're, you know, they're saying, well, it's, you know, it's obviously at the, the level is for GWP um, over the 100-year uh, time frame. And then, of course, they point out that it's much higher <clears throat> over the 20-year time frame. And they're suggesting that I think some of the actions in here are pretty, pretty aggressive, not out of line with a lot of what European countries are doing anyway, mm. uh, but they're kind of 
backing that in by the fact that uh, this is the critical decade and we need to be taking urgent action. And I think they're sort of using that as a bit of a um, point of leverage for that argument, if you like. And and specifically that as we crossed that critical threshold, which was the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it became untenable uh, for Europe to have the level of reliance on Russian gas that it had hitherto had, the role of gas fundamentally changed Mm. and that what had previously been regarded and endorsed as a transition fuel, indeed, you know, there were many countries that the plan was to bring down their greenhouse gas emissions, was to uh, decommission their coal-fired power plants and replace them with gas power plants. What this report reflects is a view that that is now untenable and that from an energy security perspective, from an affordability perspective and from a climate perspective, the imperative is now to leapfrog gas and go straight to renewable sources of energy, which is super fascinating, right? And the like the gas as a transition fuel argument and the gas is no longer a transition fuel argument, like they're both badly in need of nuance. Mm. Because the like the strongest version of that transition fuel argument used to be uh, coal to gas switch for bulk electricity yep. generation. Yep. And that is very much what did happen in the United States uh, over uh, the past, uh, like about 15 of the last 20 years. Um, that was a big dynamic in lowering US emissions. Uh, but... Uh, the for the reasons that you said, plus the shift in the economics of uh, renewables versus gas in most places for bulk energy, uh, that that is no longer tenable. Uh, now, in other contexts, the argument was different before, and it's different now. So, the flex role of gas uh, is one that this report recognises is important, um, but they see increasingly transitioning either to uh, gas peakers with carbon capture and storage, which they think is implausible unless they're located close to more regular, frequent use of CCS. Uh, or uh, peakers with um, renewable fuels yep. of one sort or another. Yep. And then in industry, I mean, th- there is some competition between coal and gas for uh, process heat, uh, but largely gas is the status quo uh, in um, households. Mm-hmm. In rich countries, gas is largely the status quo or a big chunk of the status quo. Uh, so... You know, I, I think there's been some reality and some fear of the potential for gas to play a transition-supporting role in one context to be used to kind of smuggle in um, just business-as-usual gas use in a bunch of other contexts. And anyway, I think what the academies are concluding here is in a maybe, well, still aggressive, maybe more careful way than some of their top-line rhetoric – to sweep the board and um, just just plough ahead with replacements for natural gas everywhere, noting that some of those things will be slower mm. and harder uh, than others. Can I wonk out on buildings now for a sec? Somebody's got to. Luke doesn't care about buildings. <laughs> <laughs> what about the buildings? Never heard him said a good word about it's buildings. It's very unfair. Very unfair. <laughs> I'm literally the vice president of the Australian Sustainable Environment Council tenant. I'll have you know. (laughs) I'll check my notes. 
By all means, Frankie, opine on buildings. Well, I okay. They are the, they have the most concrete and specific things to say about the future of gas in buildings in this report in that they don't think there is a role for gas uh, or, you know, some sort of substitution um, for gas using gas infrastructure. They're very mm. bullish on heat pumps. Um, the context in Europe is significant. Uh, it's by far the largest use of natural gas across the EU. They estimate that uh, 40% of residential buildings in the EU are heated by gas boilers, 65 million of them across the, the continent. Um, they also note that uh, as of you know about right now, there are eight countries that have policies in place for banning or kind of de facto bans, if you like, for banning new natural gas boilers or requiring some high levels of renewables in buildings. Um, so their recommendation on that front um, in terms of short-term measures is pretty clear. Ban it. In, in new buildings and then in the medium term look at retrofitting in combination with efficiency measures that would uh, both bring down the, the overall demand that you would see uh, for a building uh, whilst going through the process of, of electrifying it and that is really significant right we're not looking at electrification in isolation here it's maximizing efficiency first uh, which this report has really Really sought to emphasize. Um, one little bit of context uh, that I, well, it weirdly wasn't aware of until I read this report was that um, I guess up till this point in Europe and pre Ukraine, uh, gas was like, you know, pretty cheap form of heating uh, ac across the continent. Electricity was, you know, was the more expensive fuel um, by and large because of. Uh, you know, electricity dis, um, generations caught up in the the Europe's uh, emissions trading scheme, uh, but individual gas boilers didn't kind of you know at a building scale didn't meet the threshold. And they're sort of excluded from that scheme, so they they weren't subject to the ETS. So there was a distortion there as well uh, from the ETS, which which was creating a bias towards gas. Um, and not towards electricity. Specifically for home use. Yeah. Um, so for large industrial users and the like, um, they, they were caught up in the EU ETS, but um, the fuel supply to small users, to households and small businesses, I yeah. guess, not so much. Although they did say that there was an agreement reached late last year to add a carbon price mm. to all fuel supplies. Yes. ETS 2. ETS 2. The carbon price strikes back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's definitely a T-shirt in that. But they did say that it would be phased in over a number of years, so the immediate yes. impact would be would be minimal, right? But that is that is coming. That equalisation is coming. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and this is like another through the looking glass piece, so it's same but different. Um, this is a much more significant issue, you know, proportionally in terms of gas use in an EU context, because forty odd percent of gas used in the EU is used for heating buildings. Right, yes. which is huge, and I think I can't remember the exact figures, but um, I think the IEA country review we read a few episodes ago it was like somewhere in the order of fourteen or fifteen percent of gas is used in buildings, right? Mm. Yep. And so, just 
in terms of the focus that this gets from policymakers when they think about that decarbonisation challenge, it's understandable. It's more top of mind in an EU context just because it's a bigger chunk of the challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, I'm looking at this trying to think about what we extract from this uh, from an Australian perspective. Uh, I, I think noting our conversation on global supply chains up front it's useful for us to note that we're going to be in a pretty long queue for the technology that will replace uh, fossil gas boilers uh, in the world being heat pumps congratulations you are number 65 million and one in the queue for a heat pump yeah to that point about uh, security of supply, and one of the thematics of recommendations here is to onshore uh, more manufacturing of stuff uh, in the EU uh, across the board, including in um, in clean energy technology uh, more broadly. Uh, that came up a few times. There was something here that they didn't engage with that I really wished they had which is around the element of the debate between electrification and renewable gases in low-temperature heat for households and light commercial, which like they are very confident that electrification is the answer. They think that biogas there's just not going to be enough of to waste it on cooking steaks, and hydrogen they think uh, it's always going to be more expensive to rely on hydrogen that has been made with electricity than to rely on the electricity itself. But they don't engage with the arguments about the relative costs of augmenting electricity networks under a uh, renewable gas scenario versus a high electrification scenario. They, they, they do talk a little bit separately about the importance of energy management and smart demand response to yep. limit peak demand, but they don't relate that to how much electricity network investment we're going to need. And I just would have been interested to see where they came to. I mean, like, it seems like they would have come to the conclusion that, no, um, that the network stuff is fine if you're smart about it. Um, but it's the main argument that the pro-hydrogenation people have, uh, what, you know, in a, in a more sophisticated discourse, and it's, it would have been nice to see it grappled with, even if to smack it down. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. They, they talk around it. They talk around it in the context of the role of energy efficiency in kind of reducing the need for grid augmentation as you're transitioning. They talk about it in the role of just energy flexibility and demand response and I guess load shaping relative to to renewables, but they never actually tackle that particular question head on. Mm. Perhaps because it's really hard at a at that that kind of EU level mm. to say anything definitive because there's such different sort of grid infrastructure um, in yep. the various EU nations, such different circumstances, country by country, um, that anything that they could say would be pretty vague. There was a, there's sometimes little <laughs> rabbit holes that went into where it was kind of refuting arguments and kind of weighing in on debates that I didn't even know existed because I, I guess I don't follow the blow-by-blow blow crazy debates that happen in the EU, uh, you know, closely enough. Uh, one that particularly caught my eye was a intervention on the idea that we should maintain the gas grid, that all, all homes should have a heat pump 
and a gas boiler. Just in case. <laughs> Just in case. It's like a backup. <laughs> so that those, you know, six to ten days of the year where the electricity system in, uh, inevitably collapses or is too expensive to run or whatever, then we'll just just flick on the gas boiler. She'll be right, mate. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's another version of that that is more plausible, that is not about maintaining a whole separate gas boiler infrastructure in every home, but is about uh, gas with CCS or hydrogen uh, playing a role in uh, sustaining the electricity system. Yep. Uh, through electricity generation during extreme periods. Yep. And that one, frankly, sounds very plausible. But, it, yeah, the, the version where you, you've got 65 million spare uh, boilers uh, for six days of the year, uh, that they, they make the point probably won't be working very well if when they're called on uh, if they're not being used almost ever. Yeah, that wasn't a, wasn't a very persuasive. That was an easy one to knock over. <laughs> yeah. In, indeed. Shall we talk a bit about industry? Because they, they have a bit to say about, you know, decarbonising gas use in industry, tenant. Yeah. They, they recognise that, like, industry is complicated and, and they're distinguishing uh, feedstock uses yep. of uh, gas, either to transform the gas into a product like ammonia or uh, plastics, and use of uh, of gas to produce carbon dioxide that um, a lot of, you know, we, we talk about carbon dioxide a lot uh, as a problem, and it is, but it's also a useful mm. Uh, mm. molecule in a bunch of contexts, not just enhanced oil recovery, but uh, in making more chemicals uh, and in uh, food preparation, mm. uh, food processing. And a few others too. So there's there's those uses where you need a molecule, and then there's process heat, uh, where a molecule may be good, but uh, maybe there are non molecular pathways with electrification as well. But they they do point out that uh, you you may well want to uh, prioritise the biogas that is available and the or the biomethane the higher quality uh, upgraded biogas uh, and hydrogen for these uh, feedstock purposes and maybe some of the process heat but a lot of the process heat you're going to want to electrify yep um, and then those industries they have some interesting thoughts on um well they're probably not original to them this is a very uh, this is a summary report yeah, but yeah, yeah. Hydrogen valleys, uh, which we would call, yeah. I think, precincts or clusters, mm. where a bunch of industrial uh, producers and users and handlers of hydrogen uh, share common infrastructure. And risk. Yeah, and risk. Good one. Which was the really important bit of that, I thought. They were very wary about uh, suggesting that governments on their own need to fund the provision of new uh, pipeline infrastructure for these hydrogen valleys or hydrogen backbones or, you know, whatever we're going to call them. Um, They said that that should be done in partnership with, uh, like, you know, consortia of uh, private companies that are sharing that risk too, which makes sense. Yeah. They give a little less favour to the idea of subsidising 
early periods of expensive uh, tech so that it gets cheaper through learning. They give a lot shorter shrift. Like, they do recommend doing some of that, but they're very suspicious of subsidies lingering past their use-by date. And they only really talk about, like, um, scale uh, advantages. They don't really ever talk about learning rates, and I, th- I think they should they should have a look through our back catalogue of, of <laughs> papers and summarise and, and, and incorporate the... Uh, Oxford Learning Rates paper into a future iteration of this. Yes, um, sort of related to that, and it's the challenge of doing everything everywhere all at once. And they speak to what many regard as the uh, the very ambitious target uh, set in the Repower EU package of 2022 of uh, creating 10 megatons of renewable hydrogen by 2030 within. EU. And importing another 10 on top of that from somewhere else. Indeed. Mm. Um, from a standing start, right? And they have a look at this and uh, they say, well, you'd need, you know, about 500 terawatt hours a year to produce that level of hydrogen in 2030. Um, the entire uh, amount of renewable generation in 2021 was 542 terawatt hours a year. And so you're looking at doubling that, just assuming that you maintain you know the current levels of renewables for existing uses at the same level but of course we're not doing that we're looking to try and ramp up the proportion of electricity which is supplied by renewable sources over that period as well and this is where you obviously get into all the supply chains and and skills issues and it gets quite deep into the weeds of debates that have been happening in Brussels around, well, you know, they want to support the rollout of electrolyzers, but they also want to make sure that those electrolyzers are powered by renewable energy. So there's, a, there's in some proposals, an expectation that um, you, if you're building electrolyzers, you're also building renewables that can power them. But is that, you know, the best use of that near-term uh, effort on renewable infrastructure. It gets very complicated very quickly, and I find this in an EU context. Um, They are trying to be very ambitious on all of Mm. these fronts simultaneously, Mm. but as soon as you try and do that, you find that these various ambitions end up in competition with each other, and the management Mm. process and the staging process around moving through this transition at at the scale and the speed that is necessary becomes very very difficult and and they they recommend even though they voice a lot of concerns about the the risks of non-additional or or inadvertently counterproductive electrolysis Mm. uh they say uh well monitor monitor these rules that you the eu is in the process of legislating at the time they they publish this anyway and see if you can simplify them along the way Mm. Uh, because they do look quite complex. I mean, personally, there's all these debates about uh, additionality of what Mm. if the hydrogen producers are using grid electricity that was available anyway. There's a point of nuclear in that as well. There is, there is. But I may be too influenced by the Australian context, but the sorts of numbers that I see for, like, transition-relevant quantities of hydrogen, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't want to be connected to the grid because the grid provides a... requires... Like, all of us using the grid require of it a level of reliability that is far higher than what the economics of hydrogen production can afford to pay for. 
Mm. Um, like standalone dedicated renewables with a bare minimum of uh, flexibility to up your utilization of the electrolyzer capital. That's where the the good place seems to be for electrolytic hydrogen at multi megaton quantities. Mm. But like, if we're a would be hydrogen superpower, we've got our bloody work cut out for us. Because if you oh, yeah. take the Europe's 20 megaton total target and you scale that down by population, uh, which is not the only way you could do it, Australia would be matching that if we aspired to 1.1 megatons of hydrogen uh, consumed here a year. And I don't know, if you sum up the, the Fed's... Uh, hydrogen Head Start and New South Wales's hydrogen target, which are the only firm things in the country, I think that gets you to 0.1 megatons. Uh, and if you squint at WA and Victoria and what they might do, I don't know, 0.2. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know, we've got a way to go. Yeah. Or, or but, you know, maybe we, we'd be following them off a cliff. Yeah, I thought this report also had some useful and interesting things to say about other considerations in and around uh, the potential for production of uh, green or other hydrogen. They talk a lot about blue hydrogen. That's uh, open to it. Yeah. Uh, but 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 at the same time, because they're also advocating a must a much more stringent approach for accounting of emissions associated with uh, fossil gas supply chains, uh, so fugitive leaks. So they they make a point very early on of saying that this stuff isn't measured well and it's probably underestimated. Hence, uh, hence blue hydrogen based on um, the, the use of fossil gas uh, if, if you were if you were going into more detail on the certification of that gas and, and making sure you were considering all those supply chain uh, impacts properly is likely to look less compelling um, over time but they do make a point of wanting to see Europe lead on the certification of the various forms of hydrogen and uh, and in that context it was kind of weird that, uh, how open they were to the blue hydrogen Given every like the implications of everything else they were saying in terms of um, increasing the accuracy of accounting on those supply chains, um, and the other couple of points that I think are relevant here as well that don't often get talked about in this conversation about. Um, hydrogen and what its growth potentially means in terms of longer term impacts. Uh, one are around the, the requirements and impacts to water supply to do hydrogen through electrolysis. It's incredibly water intensive. And if uh, I imagine in an Australian context, a lot of uh, green hydrogen production uh, might then necessitate uh, use of desalination plants um, to, you know, to desalinate ocean water uh, to provide that water because water is a hot button issue in Australia and there's, you know, frankly, not enough of it uh, for agriculture and environmental uses and that's that's a massive concern. So they touch on that and they also talk about 
wanting to have more research and measurement on uh, on the impact of leaks of hydrogen itself. So once you get once you get a network of hydrogen going, uh, you know hydrogen has a global warming potential. So it's it's not as though its impact um, once we got that industry going is a zero emissions proposition uh, that they want to see that looked at too, which I thought is good. So it was bringing in some of those nuance points that we don't often hear about um, when we are talking about the growth of that industry. For what it's worth, I'm relaxed about both of those things and I have dodgy spreadsheets to badly justify that statement. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Oh, no. I knew that was but coming. I agree that more research <laughs> is needed. Shall we sort of bring this home by just talking about a discussion which brings the two topics together, the industry and the buildings, which is kind of the role of hydrogen in the, in the gas grid, because they are uh, pretty they don't like it. bearish on that front. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Uh, but I think it's it's useful to to unpack why. Does, do one of you have, want to have a crack at that? Well... well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, they're, they're really not big on blending, but I think for reasons we've already covered in previous episodes of the pod, it's not going to result in a, a lot of benefit from an emissions perspective in low quantities, like you'd need to do it in rather high proportions and you can't really do that uh, in a lot of existing gas networks. And um, you know, and it's low energy density, so you need you need a lot more of it um, to do the job. Like, and that came up in the context of um, storage as well, like where you would do storage of hydrogen and things like that. Um, so I mean, they're not great on that. And the other point was that piece that we touched on a little bit earlier as well as this bit of a chicken and egg on the infrastructure needed um, to move it around, like in that risk of creating stranded assets, hence their uh, propensity to suggest that that risk should be shared. They are not fans of the idea that one would upgrade gas infrastructure to accommodate hydrogen blends when the goal is to phase out unabated gas, right? I think the logic is... Maybe it's traditionalist dating logic. Uh, I'm not going to marry you, hydrogen. That's not the future. And therefore, I'm not going to move in with you. And therefore, why would I even start dating? (laughs) I can think of some reasons. But that, like the, the, they think, they think that the, the end state of cooking steaks with hydrogen in 2050 doesn't make sense, and to do more than 10%, 15% blending would need capex upgrades that basically to be 100% hydrogen ready, and that's pointless because that's not where you want to go, and therefore don't don't do anything that requires capex because you're just wasting wasting time. And, and if you do sub 10 to 15% blending, your, your emission savings are derisory. Like they say 1% for a 10% blend by mm. volume. Mm. I wasn't actually sure about that number, but we don't have time. The only thing I'll add is that I, I think that the framing of the chapter on hydrogen was, was really quite good in the sense that it's sort of taking this group of scientists getting together and, and thinking about um, this from a first principles perspective and academies of science are clearly they're not just looking at a, a technology or physical sciences point of view they're thinking about you know 
policy and politics and how all these things interact. So they're grand recommendations, but there is that long view. And the, the point that they make is that fundamentally electricity and hydrogen are both energy carriers. They were discovered about the same time in late 1700s, um, and they have long been competitors for carrying energy in energy markets. And for the last 110, 120 years, electricity has cleaned hydrogen's clock every single time. (laughs) And and their view is that ain't about to change anytime soon. And so it's going to be in those areas of uh, our economy, which are very, very hard to electrify, that hydrogen stands a chance and has some sort of competitive advantage, um, which I think is a very clarifying view and a a very persuasive way of putting something that we talk around on the pod all of the time. Um, Don't bet against electricity would be the short version of of their chapter, if I was to sum it up. (laughs) To coin a phrase. To coin a phrase. (laughs) I, I liked that um, they restated what, like, you know, like just in their buildings context, it's always going to be cheaper to use the renewable electricity mm. than to convert that to suffer the efficiency losses of converting that uh, to green hydrogen to then burn it, um, you know, in a, in a residential context, like it will never be more efficient. And because the price of green hydrogen, it depends on the price of renewable electricity. There's no way you can think it would ever get cheaper. So the hence why I think they, they, they do have like quite a clear view of uh, its use in, in buildings in that there won't be one. Um, and focus instead on, as you say, where are the sectors that it's going to be much harder to abate, like in the building space. There are solutions for that right here, right now. The challenge is on scale and rollout and skills and getting communities on board with it. out the show with one more thing in which we all share something that is currently captivating our attention. Frankie, what have you got? Well, uh, this uh, little bit of analysis got a bit of traction on Twitter the last couple of weeks. I thought it was useful to to bring to the pod a little bit from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis uh, on some updated announced costs uh, on a small modular nuclear reactor uh, that's been in the works for a while. Uh, The proponents are a company called New Scale, and this is in the US, and the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems. And uh, this um, reactor's, yeah, been in the works for a while. It's a 462-megawatt project. And because there are so few of these projects, they're all kind of closely watched, uh, particularly for the projected costs that they put out there uh, that people would be paying for the, the final power output. And so... You know, it was recently as mid-2021, the the target price for power from this project was put at around $58 a a megawatt hour. And and this uh, statement that came out uh, not long ago from those proponents said that, well, that's risen to $89 a megawatt hour, a 53% increase. 
uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, it would be much higher again uh, because this project has also received about $4 billion in tax subsidies from the US government uh, to help fund the, the construction costs of the project. And so th- there's a, also like a $30 per megawatt hour tax break from the Inflation Reduction Act to factor in. So it's an enormous cost uh, in or increase in cost for the project. And, and the higher kind of price uh, is uh, down to basically a 75% increase in the estimated construction cost for the project. Citing, you know, a lot of what uh, energy projects more broadly uh, would be experiencing at the moment, uh, which is, you know, increasing costs of steel, of uh, electrical equipment, uh, copper wire and cable, all these things have uh, uh, increased uh, significantly in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but you know, given that the high level of subsidy that this project was already receiving, and it's you know not even close to finishing, obviously people who are not fans of nuclear and don't see a role for that uh, in the in the short term would have pounced on that with a bit of glee and said see we told you uh, these costs will be uh, increasing and uh, you know we're certainly not done yet so this uh, bit of analysis is contending that well this was entirely predictable and it won't be the last time we see uh, an increase in in um, projected costs uh, from this project so very interesting. Um, suggest you go have a look at it. I'll put a link in the show notes. Tenant, you like starting debates about nuclear energy. What are your <laughs> thoughts on this? Oh, look, I would say there's a there's a generally applicable lesson when uh, thinking about stuff that hasn't been built before. Take the manufacturer's pamphlet with a uh, fistful of salt. Yeah. Uh, I think this result, like as as Frankie said. No, this is probably not the end of it uh, in terms of cost increases and there may well be delays too, we'll have to see. I think this will be bitterly disappointing to um, fans of and people resting a lot of very sincere hopes in the new generation of nuclear reactors. It is just one of the designs and uh, and technologies that's competing in the space and we'll see what this one does and what the rest of them do. But, uh, yeah, um, people who thought that the past might actually be a decent guide to predicting the future for nuclear technology um, will not be feeling any less confident in that uh, that stance mm. based on this. And we can say that uh, there was a pretty extensive section on nuclear in the, uh, in the report that we just summed up. Um, from the European Academy's Science Advisory Council. On SMR, they said, well, maybe best-case scenario might be commercial for grid applications in 2035, but probably more like 2040, but lots of hand-waving involved in even that estimate. So, uh, yes, a huge amount of confidence floating around on the old SMR in the last couple of weeks. We'd love to see a learning rate... (laughs) SMR is constructed. I imagine there's not enough data points yet uh, to feed into that, but that'd be one to watch with interest over time. Hey, can I do a sneaky twofer uh, on a totally... Is it about (laughs) T-shirts? 
<laughs> no, it's not about T-shirts. It's not another edition of Shirt Fronting with what is it? <laughs> Frankie. Shirt Franking with Fronting. Shirt Franking, Franking with Fronting. <laughs> No, I'm not ambushing you with your T-shirt chat. I was in Canberra earlier in the week and I was lucky enough to go sit in the gallery uh, in the House of Reps when the machinery bill for the referendum on The Voice passed. Um, And it was just a nice little moment of progress and history to be witness to. Uh, so I just wanted to do a little shout out, uh, as I want to do from time to time on this issue. Uh, but it was actually pretty emotional to be there. I don't know, it's, this is just about getting to the point of having a referendum, but it felt significant nonetheless. It was nice to be there. That's really great to note. Um, mm. The um, the thing that I'll I'll piggyback on that is what I'm what I'm saying when I have the opportunity on this front is uh, just you know there's going to be a range of views across across the community on this um, well, a great diversity of views in all communities including the indigenous community um, I am pro the voice for what it's worth and I have been very influenced by um, two documents like the first one is obviously the the Uluru statement of the heart um, which is just and a remarkable piece of of poetry and an extended hand from first Australians to the rest of the Australian community to to walk together. Incredibly compelling, just on an emotional level. Um, but for the intellect, the 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 kind of the the, the argument that that sort of hooked into my brain. Um, you can't go past the Boyer lectures from Noel Pearson, and particularly the first couple of episodes, which make it incredibly robust and compelling case for why the voice is actually going to have practical uh, and long-lasting impacts for the um, the state and status of First Australians in the broader Australian community. So uh, there you go. Um, there will be links to both of those things in the show notes, Frankie. Yeah, well, well, I think I did. A, I think um, the Boyer Lectures was a previous One More Thing of mine, so I'm glad you went and watched that. Actually, that's right. You recommended it, and I went and listened to it, and now I'm recommending it. So, Tenet, have you listened to it? I have not. <laughs> I am unqualified. <laughs> you can report back. <laughs> I'm going to jump on that. I will do my homework. All right. Tenant, what have you got? Uh, so what I have is a scandalous display of unethical self-dealing uh, because I'm going to promote a, uh, a report that uh, I helped to write, hmm. um, which is Victoria's 2035 Climate Action Target, Driving Growth and Prosperity, the report of the independent panel recommending targets to the Victorian government. I was on that panel and therefore it is improper for this podcast to analyse the report as a, as a whole, but I will just say the report uh, reflects some of the, the learnings and concerns uh, and, and thinkings that have taken place on this podcast. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. Mm. Uh, of course, this the, the big thing is it recommends an 80% reduction of 2005 levels by 2035, which is, in technical jargon, a bloody big number. And we should not underestimate how difficult it will be to achieve. However, 
part of the argument is that by going hard on uh, a range of opportunities that we have in electricity, in gas use, uh, in transport, in agriculture and in land management, by going hard on the things that are, if not easy, easier than some of the really difficult pieces of emissions to deal with, we give ourselves more time and space to address those really hard-to-abate pieces of the economy. So uh, it, it's it's worth a look. Uh, the government did adopt uh, the 75 to 80% emissions reduction target that they announced before the election when they, they had uh, an, an interim report to go on. Uh, and uh, the gas piece of things... I mean, th- there is some thinking about the future of gas in this um, in this report, uh, and uh, it concludes that uh, where Victoria needs to get to is to largely phase out the use of gas by 2035, which will take some doing, but uh, is pretty urgent to start on because we may not have 65 million boilers, but we've got a few million gas-connected households uh, with a lot of appliances in the state of Victoria, and uh, if that is going to be, uh, as the report suggests, largely if not entirely electrified, but even equally true if it was going to be uh, entirely replaced by hydrogen and biogas... You better get your skates on to get that job done or largely done by just 12 years from now. So, worth a look. We could comment on it. You just have to recuse yourself, Tenet. Oh, yeah. You can say anything about it. And then then, uh, we could be joined by uh, guest co-host Renard Teed (laughs) with a voice modulator. I, I, I respect Renan's views. I think this gentleman tenant has some rather good ideas. <laughs> so stay tuned for that, listeners. I just want to say it's a very big number. It's a very big yeah. number. And there is, for my money, a bit of a disconnect in the debate because that number was committed to prior to the election. It's a very impressive mm-hmm. number. Nobody batted an eye. Nobody batted an eye. I don't think there was any real debate around that as part of the election campaign. And I think any fair-minded analysis would look at the current set of Victorian policies around emissions reduction and they would say, well, there's a bit of a gap there, isn't there, in terms of what would be required to catalyse the speed and the scale of transition in every sector of the Victorian economy to achieve that. Last time I looked in it, um, I think that uh, 17 to 18% of Victorian emissions are from the agriculture sector. Yes, there is a significant chunk there. And uh, the report does recommend uh, that we need to be in mass deployment with the easier parts mm. of the Victorian um, herds of methane-reducing feed supplements and other techniques by 2035. These things are in trials at the moment for the dairy context. Uh, Dairy cattle, not as easy as feedlot cattle, but a lot easier than rangeland beef and and sheep. Uh, But we need to get out of the agricultural testing stations and into mass deployment. 
but that's only going to make some contribution to that goal. Gas is pretty... It's an, it, it's a non-optional part of the 2035 strategy that's needed. My, so my, my point is that to achieve this target, which the government says that it is its target um, yep. that it's working towards, it needs just huge effort in every sector of the of the Victorian economy. And I would anticipate that the agriculture sector is going to be one of the harder to abate sectors. And so that means that you need the rest of the economy to do a lot more. Mm. Right. Yeah. There are difficult bits everywhere, but there are substantial opportunities everywhere as well. And there are, of course, economic opportunities from making uh, a big push. Yep. Uh, both in terms of establishing uh, Victoria's position in emerging global markets, mm. in reducing our exposure to uh, markets that uh, will uh, not be keen on high emission sources for, for key products, uh, and in speeding the progress of some of these technologies down the global learning curve that we've spoken about so many times before. All right. Uh so I was casting around for one more thing and Tennant suggested I talk about the National Energy Efficiency Conference, which took place last week as we record, just. Um, that seemed to be a bit mean because I could wax lyrical about its wonders, but uh, if you weren't already there, um, you can't go back in a time machine and be there. Um, but what you can do is avail yourself of some of the digital artefacts that uh, emerged around the sidelines of the conference. Uh, Electrification guru Jan Rosenau, of course, joined us. He was our global keynote and he was interviewed on the ABC Radio's PM program um, where he talked a bit about electrification, talked a bit about the importance of efficiency. Um, the interviewer sort of started going through a range of different energy technologies. It talked, turned into a bit of a energy technology hot or not, according to Jan Rosenau, um, which was sort of fun. Getting right down, I think, he even covered small modular reactors as part of that conversation, which I don't think he Ooh. expected to do <laughs> when, he, when he rolled into that interview, but that was sort of fun. Uh, and the one of, actually, there were many global luminaries, but one of the other ones um, at the conference was uh, Jacques Morris, who is the head of the Secretariat of the UK's Transition Plan Task Force, who have been uh, leading on the development of robust transition plan frameworks for operationalising business net zero commitments. Uh, he's a superstar in his own right. Um, and as well as talking at our conference, he also spoke at an Australian Sustainable Finance Institute event. And uh, the ASFI event uh, is recorded and online, and I can chuck a link for both of those things up in the show notes, so at least you can get a little bit of the uh, the charisma and insight and expertise um, of a couple of our keynote speakers. And in the other podcast, the First Fuel podcast feed, um, there will be a few interviews going up with, with some of those human beings as well over the course of the next uh, next month or so, so you can keep an eye out for those. It was a cracking conference week. Thanks for having Tennant and I along to play small parts. Fantastic cheering from both of you, so thank you very much for that as well. Should we also alert people to the fact that uh, Rob Murray Leach sang a song and that's somewhere on the internet? <laughs> that is <laughs> well true. People to have a... <laughs> 
a look at. Friend of the pod uh, and head of market transformation at the Energy Efficiency Council, the organisation uh, which also employs me, uh, Rob Murray Leach. Uh, he is departing the EC after 14 years explaining the importance of energy efficiency to this energy transition that uh, we're working our way through. And he saw fit to close our gala dinner by singing a version of, what was it, Frankie? Dankeschön. Dankeschön to the assembled throngs um, uh, with the lyrics sort of updated to reflect the the ups and downs of his uh, many years at the EC, um, which I think a few people almost fell off their seats when he <laughs> launched into that. Uh, but it, it was a lot of fun, and he has... Um, He's thrown a video up on LinkedIn of that, so you can also uh, you can enjoy that. Love it. That's a show team. Uh, we are on a wide variety of social media. I'm making an executive decision to stop sort of elevating Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the platforms uh, on which we uh, opine and interact from time to time, but we're also on LinkedIn, and I even log into Mastodon from time to time, so you can find us all there. But for more specific comments, uh, feedback or questions, we have a uh, email address. Frankie, what is it? It is mailbag at letmesumup.net. And to this email address, you can send hot tips on ethical T-shirt procurement, <laughs> first and foremost, obviously. Uh, suggestions for climate and energy papers you think Luke Tennant and I can wonk out on, preferably in the range of 50 to 100 pages. I, well, no, I, I wanted to pick you up on this. Preferably in the range of 5 to 10. <laughs> I think the upper limit <laughs> is 50 pages, although we sometimes oh. get tempted by 70-page reports like the uh, ESAC one that we covered today. That's true. Short reports. Love them. Okay, short reports. <laughs> Fine. We love that. Uh, any feedback you have on the show, including various opines on small modular reactors or other things? Yeah, yeah, address, address those ones to tenant. Oh, don't poke the bear. I am not baiting our audience for chats on nuclear. I think you just did. Well, people are going to give us their thoughts one way or the other mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. we're always here for that you've got the email address now sorry guys i hope that people don't get confused and instead of emailing us to provide hot tips on ethical t-shirts they send us ethical tips on hot t-shirts which would not be the same <laughs> thing at all <laughs> thanks for making my life more interesting tenant <laughs> this is gonna be great we also have a website tenant we do. LetmeSumUp.net is the place to go if you would like to hear more episodes of this very podcast that you're listening to right now. If you somehow discovered it without going to that website, you can find the entire back catalogue there. Get on to it. Uh, for Frankie Muskovich and Tenet Reid, I'm Luke Menzel. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. Oh, shit. We didn't say it was our one-year anniversary on the pod. Oh, yeah. Which it will be when it comes out. <laughs> well, uh, what would you have said if we had remembered to incorporate it, if we hadn't prioritised shirt fronking <laughs> with, with fronking? <laughs> I, I would have said uh, there, is a, there is a tipping point where this podcast is more in-jokes. <laughs> <laughs> than, than content. <laughs>
dangerously close to that threshold. <laughs> that tipping point is far behind us. So it's all downhill from here on the great seesaw of the Let Me Sum Up podcast.